0: Tonight, I will talk to you about storm warning. Revelation chapter 15 and chapter 16. These two chapters really do go well together. Tonight, we'll look at the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 15. Uh, But I assure you that it is no reflection on the significance or the importance of that chapter. Uh, It's compacted into eight short verses, Uh, there's a lot of material. uh, about the end of time. And then we're going to look after chapter 15, then we're going to look at chapter 16, which describes really the darkest time in the, period, in, in, in our, the world history, in human history. Chapter 16 is the darkest time uh, in human history. So let's just kind of give you the context and jump in. Going back to chapter 14, remember that about 1921 years ago, a prediction was made about the last day on earth. That's what we talked about last time. John fast-forwarded the tape to let us have a glimpse of how this world would end. That was Revelation chapter 14. That that John kind of put the tape on fast-forward, gave us a glimpse of how the world would end. That's chapter 14. In chapter 15, he rewinds the tape and picks up the story where he left off uh, in chapter 13. So I hope that's not too confusing. But let me just follow your notes and notice that there are three judgments spoken of in Revelation that occurred during these seven years of tribulation. Uh, there is the, what is called the sealed judgments, Revelation chapter 6, which occurs in the first half of the tribulation. Uh, then there is the trumpet judgments, Revelation 8 and 9, which also occurs in the first half of the tribulation, first three and a half years of that seven-year period. And then there is the bold judgments, which we'll talk about tonight, Revelation 15 and 16, and these occur in the second half of the tribulation, This is also known as the time of great tribulation because it is during this time that God's wrath will be poured out in its fullest sense. And it will lead to the end of the world as we know it. So what we're talking about tonight in chapter 15 and chapter 16 is basically God pouring out His wrath on humankind and marking the end of the world as we know it. Now, in chapter 15, chapter 15 introduces the seven last plagues that will bring the time of tribulation to an end and will usher in the millennial reign of Christ. And let's just begin reading uh, in verse 1, chapter 15 of Revelation, verse 1. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. This is John speaking. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven... What kind of plagues is that, Jamie? What kind of plagues does it say there? Seven what? Seven last plagues. All right, already we have an indication that these are things that's going to occur at the very end. These are the things that that will occur that will bring human history to a close. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them, God's wrath... It's completed. So we see, first of all, if you're following in your notes there, the completion of God's wrath. You need to understand that during the last three and a half years of the tribulation, there will be these seven plagues that God will pour out on the world. And these will bring, as he says in the end of verse, that this will bring to completion God's wrath. These plagues will be the worst thing this world has ever seen. We're going to look at those in chapter 16 in a moment. These plagues are outlined in chapter 16, and sometimes they are referred to as the seven bowls of God's wrath. Let me ask you something. Have you, ever, have you ever had a big bowl of cereal, and you're walking? Maybe you don't do this. You probably eat your cereal in the kitchen, don't you? Have you ever had a big bowl of cereal, and you're walking to the living room to watch ESPN, and you stumble, and you spill it out? All right. All right, well, that works, too. When you spill something out, it doesn't just kind of, you know, unless you just do a little bit, but when you kind of really dump the bowl all of a sudden, I mean, it just comes pouring out. I want you to think of God's wrath in those terms, that these bold judgments, as, as they are called, are times when God's wrath will come pouring out on the world. And when we get to chapter 16, it will make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. If you take to heart what is recorded in Scripture and what this world will endure. It's important that you know the recipients of these plagues. The wrath of God will be aimed at those who have... listened to this, and you might want to write it down somewhere there on, in the column, the note column. The wrath of God will be aimed at those who have ignored God's voice, those who have rejected God's Son and those who have resisted God's Spirit. I'm going to say that again. God's wrath will be aimed at those who have ignored God's voice, those who have rejected God's Son, and those who have resisted God's Spirit. At this time in history, man's heart will become so completely hardened that any pleas, even from the throne of God, will be ignored. This is the final judgment of God on this world. Notice that in verse 1, it says that God's wrath is completed. This is an interesting word because it marks a turning point in history. This, This is a turning point in history because this is the day that grace will end. We're living in a day of grace, ladies and gentlemen. We are living in a day of mercies. Remember the scripture that says, His mercies are new every morning. Well, aren't you grateful for that? We're living in a time when God's mercies are new. Every maybe you don't need it, but I need God's mercies every morning. And we're living in that day of grace. But this day in verse one is a turning point in history. It's the day that grace will have ended. The word "complete" speaks of a plan being carried out. The goal was was completely accomplished. Look in chapter sixteen, verse seventeen, just to give you the context. Chapter 16, verse 17, fast forward to that. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Does that sound vaguely familiar to anything else you've heard in the New Testament or read in the New Testament? Yes, Jesus on the cross, and what did he say? It is finished. On the cross, now get this. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. But for those who reject his sacrifice and refuse his offer of forgiveness, there will be a day when he will declare, it is done. On the cross, mercy and grace. Were made available to you and I. But there's coming a day when that door will close and God will declare as he pours out his wrath on those who have ignored his voice, those who have rejected his son, those who have resisted his Holy Spirit. There's coming a day when the wrath of God will be poured out on those and God will declare it is done. I don't know about you, I like it is finished a whole lot better. Notice the tribulation saints that are mentioned in verse 2, chapter 15, verse 2. It says, And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea those who had been victorious over the beast and his image, and over the number of his name, they held harps given them by God. This is a beautiful picture painted for us in verse 2 of the tribulation saints who have remained faithful to God, and they've paid the price with their lives. That's the pictures painted here in this verse. The sea of glass. Most scholars believe that this sea of glass, men- mentioned here, mixed with fire, probably symbolizes the trouble that these tribulation saints passed through. You see, their way was not an easy way. Their path was not, z- not an easy path, uh, they had to pass through the fire. Tribulation saints will go through t- turmoil and persecution unlike anything you and I could have ever experienced. But notice that these people who pass through the fire are victorious. Note that word. They're victorious. And I, I will... This is going to be so important. Listen to this. Verse 2, And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They were victorious over the beast, which represents the political pressure to reject Christ and accept the promises of the Antichrist. They're victorious over that. They're victorious over his image, which is religious pressure to reject Christ through the work of the false prophet. They're also victorious over, it says, the number of His name, which is the, the economic pressure to reject Christ. And, and so they will be victorious over this threefold pressure, if you will, to turn away from Christ, to reject Christ. But they will be victorious. But listen, that means something a little different than you and I when we use the word victorious. You and I, when we use the word victorious, we talk about some, somebody who's won a race or you know somebody who won a game or some somebody who's won in some arena they were victorious that's not what is described here what's described here are men and women who laid down their lives for the sake of Jesus they paid the ultimate sacrifice they died on earth but they are very much alive in heaven They are treated as heroes because they did not cave in under enormous pressure. The only thing that the devil will accomplish is that he will usher them into the presence of God. The devil will will slay them. The devil will torture and kill them. But the only thing he will ultimately accomplish is to escort them or, or at least usher them into God's presence. Look, read the text with me, starting again in verse 2. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, standing beside the sea. And those who had been victorious over the beast, they had resisted him. And victorious over his image, they had resisted that. And victorious over the number of his name, they, they had resisted that. They held harps given them by God. Now look at verse 3. And sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And here's the song, verse 4. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages, who will, not, who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. It's interesting that these tribulation saints are going to be, these tribulation martyrs, they're going to be singing what songs does it say they're going to sing? Song of Moses and what? Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. Write this down in the column there if you, if you like. Song of Moses is in Exodus 15. It was a song by the Israelites after they were brought out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. It is a, an Old Testament redemption song giving glory to God for His intervention in their lives. It's an Old Testament redemption song. The Song of the Lamb is a song about having victory in Jesus Christ. When you look at those two and compare those two together, the Song of Moses was sung at the Red Sea. The Song of the Lamb will be sung at the Crystal Sea. The Song of Moses was about victory over Egypt. The Song of the Lamb will be about victory over sin's bondage. The song of Moses rejoices that God brought His people out. The song of the Lamb that will rejoice that God brought His people in to heaven. The song of Moses is the first song of the Bible. The song of the Lamb is the last song of the Bible. But they are both songs of redemption. I want you to read the song again, verse uh, verse three and four. Just just read it, scan it real quickly. There's not a single word in that song about their own personal achievement. There's not a single word about what they accomplished, what they did in that song. What is that song about? What's the focus of it? All right, from beginning to end, the song is a lyric song about the greatness of God. Look at it again. Great and marvelous are whose deeds? Your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy, and all nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed." I like what William Barclay, the, old, or the New Testament scholar, said. He said, heaven is a place where men forget themselves and remember only God. That's good. And then in verses 5 through 8, we have preparation for the, the plagues that we're going to be looking at tonight. Verse 5 through 8. Verse 5, after this I looked, and in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the testimony was opened, And out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. I just want you to, in your mind, in your own imagination, I want you to, in verse 7, I want you to imagine what this is like. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. I'm convinced that we can't fully comprehend this, what what I'm about to tell you, but as best as I can, I want to describe something to you. I'm convinced that I can't fully comprehend this. Maybe you can, can. But you say, Pastor, I don't understand this whole thing about God's wrath because I thought God was a God of love. He is a God of love, and He has been waiting since creation of time. He has been waiting for men and women to turn and place their faith in him. He has tried everything you could ever imagine to get people to turn to him and put their faith in him. He has sent prophets. He has written his word. Uh, he sent his own son to die on the cross. He, he, he's done everything imaginable to reach out to people. But there comes a time when eventually sin must be judged. You know, it says in First Peter, he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But there comes a time when that day stops. There comes a time when God will finally judge the sin that's in his creation. And when that day comes, the full wrath of God against sin will be poured out on mankind. We can't imagine what that's going to be like. That's the, best, the, the best that we can do is to look at chapter 16. Because in chapter 16, he describes for us seven bowls. And each of these seven bowls represents something that's going to happen in the world. Chapter 16 is one of those chapters in the Bible that makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Because chapter 16 reminds us, It's basically a warning of what's ahead. You know, in the last several days, we've seen a lot of weather warnings, haven't we? You're watching the TV, and on the bottom of the screen, that ticker goes across the bottom of the screen, you know, the hurricane warning. We see all kinds of warnings going across the screen. Let me tell you something. They don't put those warnings up for light showers. They don't put those warnings up to say, hey, there will be uh, sprinkles in Powdersville tomorrow morning. They don't put it up for for light showers. They put those warnings up, ladies and gentlemen. They reserve them for severe, life-threatening storms. Chapter 16 is a storm warning for all mankind. The storm is looming on the horizon. And John is describing what will take place at the end of the world, at the end of the Great Tribulation. And what we're about to read is the darkest hour in human history when the wrath of God will be poured out in its fullness. In fact, I want to say this. If what we are about to read was, were to be a movie, I'm convinced it would be rated R. I'm going to say that again. If what we are about to read was a movie, it would be rated R for its graphic violence. The graphic nature of the content. We would have to rate it R if it were a movie. So let's just look into it and see what these seven bowls are all about. Now, I'm going to ask you to help me tonight. I'm going to ask you to participate for the rest of the study. I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. In fact, you're going to help me teach the rest of this lesson. But for each of the bowl judgments, I'm going to ask you the target. Who's the target in this judgment? I'm going to also ask you, what's the affliction And then I'm going to ask you, what's the ramifications of that particular judgment? And so this is going to be a group study for the rest of the way out as we look at chapter 16. First of all, let's look at bowl number one, verses one and two. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. First angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out. On the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. First of all, who is the target in this judgment? I'm hearing some... what. Those who worship the beast. Those, those who are the followers of the Antichrist. If the man takes the mark of the beast on his hand or his forehead, it will somehow turn against them. Look, what's, what's the affliction there? Ugly and painful sores. The thought here is of, of ulcerous, contagious, putrefying sores which infect the body sort of like a cancer. Uh, you might think of it in terms of a skin disease for which there is no cure. Skin disease that, that doesn't get better. Um, have you ever been bit by fire ants? I mean, not just one, but you just kind of put your foot in the middle of it. Isn't that like one of the, I mean, isn't that awful? And you, you just, you're just itching like for days, you know? What the writer is referring to here, of course, is something far greater than fire ants. But it will indeed be a time of great affliction because look how he describes it. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land and, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. It, it may be, we're not sure if their whole body will be covered by sores or if the place where they received the mark is going to become a sore, but, but ugly and painful things will happen and these are just the beginning of the torments. Uh, it's interesting, it's, it's similar to the, the boils described in Exodus 9 regarding the plagues of Egypt. Write down in the column of your Bible, uh, Exodus 9, 8 through 11. We will not have time to read that, Exodus 9, 8 through 11, if you want to read that further. Now, what are the ramifications of that? Let, let's just kind of think through this for a moment. If ugly and painful sores break out on people, what's the ramifications of that? Think through that with me. Maybe. Maybe contagious. It's visible. What? Pain. Very painful. Huh? People become irritable. Yeah. And imagine now, if he's pouring out this on on all of those who are lost and who have rejected the Lord Jesus... You're not just talking about a small number of people who will have this. You're talking probably millions of people who suddenly will break out with this, these ulcers, this ugly and painful sores. Psychologically, emotionally, physically, it will be awful because there won't be anything that, that will take the pain away. There won't be, it's kind of as I talked about those, those uh fire ant bites, it's just hard to get it to stop itching. There won't be anything to take the pain away, and it will be magnified a whole lot worse than than a simple ant bite. All right, so that's bowl number one. Bowl number two, and I want you to notice how each of these bowls continue to get worse. Bowl number two is in verse three. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Now, this is a simple one to understand. Who is the target in this one? The sea is, who I should say, what is the target, perhaps? The sea. What's the affliction? Blood, but what happens when the sea becomes blood? The ocean becomes thick. It becomes coagulated. uh, It's just a mass of fluid that stinks like a badly decomposing body. What are the ramifications, though? This gets very interest, interesting. If the sea becomes like blood and everything in it dies, what's the ramifications of that? Weather, food, water. Let's just talk about those, three, those big three. Weather, how's that going to affect the weather? Yeah. Yeah. All right, so it's going to affect the weather, certainly. It's going to affect the food supply. It won't bother me any because I don't like anything out of the water anyway. The Lord put that stuff under the water for a reason. He never intended that for my stomach. That's not biblical. That's just Keith. Um, Say that again, Andy. All right, air supply as well. Do you think it will affect the global economy? Oh, yeah. I mean, just think about travel like that across the ocean. It will be probably impossible. You wouldn't want to be out there. And then something as small as this. You know, all of those beach communities up and down the coast, and any coast, wipe them out. Shores will be cluttered with rotting piles of fish. The stench will be unbearable. Um, someone put this said this, "It will be as though the bruised world is laying in its own gore. It'll be awful. Uh, that's just the second bowl. So the first bowl let's review this real quick. The first bowl is, what? Sores. Ugly, painful sores that cover their bodies, and, and it's, it's millions and millions of people affected. Number two, the, the sea becomes blood. Number three, verses 4 through 7. Third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water. So this one is about water too. And they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now this is very interesting. So I've already told you the target is fresh water. The the, the previous one was the salt water, the sea. Now the target is fresh water. And, and the affliction is, again, the water is turned into blood. But I think it's so interesting here that it, it says in verse 5, Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged, for they have shed the blood of your saints and your prophets. And you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. In other words, this one is going to be so bad when the fresh water turns blood. It's as if the angel said, now Lord, we just want you to know, we believe you're just in doing this. this because it's going to be so awful. We just, we just want to declare you're just in doing this. They've shed the blood of innocent people Innocent Christians, the martyrs, the tribulation saints, they've shed the blood of all of your tribulation saints, and so now you have given them blood to drink. Wow. Mm. I want you to find the Old Testament book of Hosea chapter 8. Hosea chapter 8, verse 7. Somebody read that for me. Hosea 8, 7. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. Wicked deeds eventually result in even greater suffering. It's the principle there. Would you think through the Bible with me for a moment? From the time of Abel, think of all the righteous people who have had their blood shed. Think of all the righteous people who have been killed from the time of Abel. And their blood was shed. They died for their faith. Millions and millions have bled and died And so when we come to the end of the world, God's going to settle that account. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think it's in chapter 6. I'm just going on memory there, but I think it's around chapter 6. They had said, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? How long do we have to wait? And Here's the answer. Here's the answer. How is he going to avenge their blood? He's going to give the sinful world blood to drink. Now, let's talk about the ramifications of that. Not only are the the sea, the salt water is going to turn blood, but the fresh water is going to turn to blood. What's the ramifications of that? Say that louder. Death everywhere. Nothing to drink. No usable water, Yeah. Yeah, you can't do anything. Do you think that there will be global panic? Absolutely. Absolutely. Health problems? Uh, Maybe, I'm guessing here, maybe it will begin to dawn on people that the end of the world is just around the corner. Maybe it will begin to, to dawn on people that God is indeed judging the world. Now, I want you to look at one other scripture before we go to the next one. Go back to the book of Exodus, chapter 7. Exodus, chapter 7. You see, in Revelation 16, this is not the first time that God has turned water to blood. Exodus, chapter 7, verse 17 This is what the Lord says, By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and the canal, the fresh water, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. Verse 20, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. And what God did once in in the corner of of the world, He will one day do worldwide. And that's just the third bowl of judgment. Oh, absolutely. 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 There, There will be death, massive, massive death. Let's go to bowl number four things continue to get worse. Bowl number four is in verses eight and nine. Fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given the power to scorch people with fire. Talk about sunburn. Verse nine, they were seared by the intense heat, and they asked God to stop it. Is that what your Bible says? No. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify Him. So what is the target in this particular judgment? The sun. The sun was given power to burn people. All God would have to do is remove one or two layers of the ozone that blankets the globe. You know, scientists are already warning us about global global warming. Uh, It's nothing compared to the global warming we're going to have. And it doesn't matter what form God uses, one day the plague will happen. Go to the last book of the Old Testament, which is the book of Malachi, chapter 4. Malachi, chapter 4, verse 1. Surely the day is coming, this Old Testament prophet. Surely the day is coming, he says, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. One commentator said the earth is turning on its axis Begins to resemble a pig roasting on a spit Yes Yes Exactly Exactly. Which brings me to the ramifications. Look in verse 9. This is exactly what Greg's talking about. In verse 9, look at, look at the, the ramifications here. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. You would think that as these things unfold that people would no longer doubt God, that they would no longer resist God. They, they know He is real, but they will curse Him anyway. Don't ever think that judgment brings men to repentance. If the great love of God won't soften a man's heart, justice won't do it either. We've got this mistaken idea that when God begins judgment, that will cause people to turn around. Listen, if the love of God doesn't cause them to turn around, the judgment of God won't. They will experience the judgment of God because their heart will continue to harden. And may I warn you. The longer you resist the Lord, the harder your heart gets. And you can get to the point where your heart is so hard that you will refuse to turn to God regardless of what happens. It's a dangerous thing to resist and say no to God. Which brings us to the fifth bowl. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of, of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness Look at this. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And here again we're told, but they refused to repent of what they had done. In some ways, this is a preview of hell itself. Jesus described it as a place of outer darkness where there'd be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that is essentially what is described here. Despite their evil, they're still clinging to it. They're still clinging to their evil. I want you to look at these words in the verse. Agony, curse the God of heaven, and refuse to repent. Imagine living in a time when there is worldwide agony, worldwide cursing, worldwide rebellion against God. Which brings us to the sixth bowl, verses seven or I'm sorry, verses twelve through sixteen. This bowl of judgment is the one that most people are familiar with because it details for us the great battle of Armageddon. When we get to Revelation 19, we will talk in more detail about the battle of Armageddon. But let's just read it and make a few comments about it right now. Verse twelve. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up. Now, this is interesting. This, this one did not turn to blood. This one, the water was dried up. Well, why would that be? What does it say in the second part of the verse? Its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs, and they came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief... Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. This bowl of judgment is the one that that you probably are most familiar with or maybe most interested in. The great river Euphrates will be dried up to prepare, in essence, a way for the kings of the earth to travel to the, to the valley of Megiddo or the place of Armageddon. This is interesting. This affliction is not physical. All the other wraths, all the other bowls have been physical affliction. This is not physical. This is spiritual. Three frog-like deceiving spirits will come onto the scene with miraculous wonders. They will entice the kings of the world to a place called Armageddon for a final conflict against God. And Christ. Notice in verse 12, these kings of the east. Look what it says about them. The sixth angel poured out the bowl of the great river Euphrates, and its water dried up, to prepare the way for the kings from the east. China now has the capability of, of fielding an army of 200 million people. 200 million soldiers. And the kings of the east will meet at Armageddon, which really is the valley of Megiddo. We've been there. If you go with me to Israel, hopefully next year, we will go to Megiddo and we'll stand on top of this, this small mountain or, or big hill and we will overlook the valley of Megiddo. We will overlook the valley where Armageddon will take place. It is a flat land uh, located near the center of Palestine. When Napoleon Bonaparte first saw that great valley, he said, and I quote, this is the ideal battleground for all the armies of the world. Many great wars have already been fought there over the years, over the centuries. Many great battles have been fought. Even in Old Testament days, you you see records of battles being fought at the valley of Megiddo. Uh, There's all kinds of records of that. Judges chapter 4, Judges chapter 7. But the question tonight is, what could induce the kings of the earth to concentrate their forces on that one spot in the earth? What would convince the kings of the east, the rulers of the world, to come to that one place, to come to that one spot, that one valley? Look in verse 14. Verse 14 says this, They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs that go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. There will be a final demonic push to unite the kings of the world against Israel. Demonically enticed, they will find their way to the valley of Megiddo. They will find their way to Armageddon for the final war of human history. We'll talk more about that when we get to chapter nineteen. Yes. Yeah, we're not sure. It's it's a good question, but we're not sure. Yeah, well, because they're demonic. Because they're demonic. Which brings me to the seventh bowl, seventeen and verse seventeen and following. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. Now notice, this is not on the ground, it's not on the water, it's in the air. seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. Now notice the next sentence. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. Just stop right there for a moment. The cities of the nations. Just think, of, for example, New York City. And all of a sudden, the buildings of that city collapse under the earthquake. You know when there's an earthquake today... Uh, there, if there's an earthquake in, in Chile, if there's an earthquake in Mexico, if there's an earthquake in California, it makes national news because there was an earthquake, a large earthquake, 6.7 or something, and hundreds of people or thousands of people are killed or at least trapped in, in just, and the buildings are destroyed. It, it is a global news story when there is an earthquake in one little city or one large city. What about when the earthquake is worldwide? And the catastrophe is worldwide. And the buildings of the cities are all destroyed. First of all, just think of the mass casualties there. Now, but keep reading. Hmm. Let's, uh, let's read verse 19 again. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. And God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. And look at verse 20. Very interesting to me, verse 20. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hell because the plague was so terrible. Final judgment will appear in the form of of uh, the world's greatest earthquake. When the earthquake occurs, the surface of the earth will be changed. It says, every island will sink into the waters. Every mountain will be leveled. Just think of some of the places you've been. Puerto Rico, Hawaii, covered with mountains and water, and all of a sudden, they will be no more. Every building, every wall will crumble. Millions and millions and millions of people will be beneath the rubble. And then, hell will fall. H-A-I-L will fall. And how big will will the, the balls of hell be? Well, it's hard to imagine that, but the best word picture I can give you, and this is a poor word picture because if you go to the bowling alley, and, you, you know, they've got these balls, this one's 10 pounds, this one's 14 pounds, this one's 16 pounds. Could you imagine if just those were falling from the sky, if bowling balls were falling from the sky? Imagine the damage that that would do. Let's just say 15-pound bowling balls falling from the sky. Imagine the catastrophe, the death, the damage that would occur if bowling ball or hell, the size of bowling balls were falling from the sky. And that's just maybe 15 pounds, and these hellstones will be 100 pounds. Yes, uh-huh, say that again, I didn't hear all that, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So it's going to be ten times the, that block of ice. You know, some of you can remember perhaps buying blocks. Of, this is back way before my time. You know, this is back in the days like when Dave went to go to the, and he'd go get those box, blocks of ice for his refrigerator. Some of you have no idea what we're even talking about, do you? It's like, blocks of ice, why, why don't you just go to the store, you know? Why don't you just go to the whatever? I want to end by, by looking at the, the, the last verse, verse 21. Uh, from the sky, huge hailstones of about 100 pounds each fell upon men. And I want you to notice the depth of man's depravity. And they curse God on account of the plague of hell because the plague was so terrible. When they should have begged God for mercy, when they should have begged God for forgiveness and begged God for deliverance, they, in defiance, cursed God because of the plague. I just say to you that as we close, as we look at the rest of the book of Revelation, it will become more and more obvious to you, though you already know this on one level, but as we look at the rest of Revelation, it will become more and more obvious to you that the Lord God Almighty is in charge. Thank you for being here tonight. Let me pray with you before we close. Father, we know that this book really is a storm warning. You in Your mercy and in Your grace warning us of what is to come for this world. May we take it seriously. May we be reminded that it matters if we know You. And it matters if we don't. And may we also be reminded, Father, I pray, of those who have yet to place their faith in Christ. May we become people and become a church that is focused on those Who do not yet know you. We want them to experience your love and your mercy and your grace. We don't want them to experience your wrath. Show us how to do a better job of just sharing the gospel of Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.